We are studying the last seven statements of Christ from the cross, uh, profound words. Today we look at uh, statement number three uh, from John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. If you have a Bible and like to look at that passage, I will also project it in a few minutes for you if you don't have a Bible. John 19, 25 to 27. Let's go to God in prayer as we dedicate our time to him. Lord, uh, give us insight uh, into your statements from the cross, especially the third one that we will delve into today. Uh, may it challenge us uh, to live as you lived, uh, caring for others less fortunate. Uh, may it resonate in our souls and move us to action. And uh, we give you glory and praise uh, for being our savior, for bearing our sin, and for making a way to the Father, in Jesus' name, amen. The hymn, uh, How Great Thou Art, is a great old song. Uh, I like to play it on the piano. Uh, I use piano uh, at home to, to worship. Uh, and it has uh, words that are most meaningful when you think about the statements of Christ. It says, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, he adds, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Uh, what jumps out at me is when I was uh, looking at this uh, is the, just the little phrase, I, I scarce can take in what Jesus has done, the magnitude of the work of Christ. When you think about uh, being crucified and taking time to forgive the soldiers who were uh, casting lots to, to take his clothing, it, that he would forgive them is, is unbelievable. That he would uh, take a thief who had been cursing him a few moments earlier uh, and then when that thief re recognized that he was the Savior and the Messiah to turn and, and grant that, that thief who had a lifelong history of sin and evil would grant him forgiveness and paradise is, is unbelievable. It's hard to take that in. That he would take your sinful self at the moment of faith and forgive you is amazing. All those young people that were baptized today uh, are just an illustration of just how amazing the work of Christ is in changing the life. On a... Crucifixion Day, Passover Day, uh, during Christ's uh, crucifixion event. Uh, it started at nine in the morning. Around noon, uh, the Father's gonna turn the lights down on the cosmos and bring utter darkness to the earth uh, as his, his son's gonna hang on the cross uh, in that darkness from uh, around noon to three o'clock when he's gonna give up his spirit to the Father. And right before uh, the cosmic lights are turned off, as the Lord deals with our sin on the cross, uh, we read these words in the book of John, chapter uh, 19, verses 25 and following. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and a fourth lady, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother, because the darkness had not yet descended, the disciple whom he loved was standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son, and then he said to the disciple, this would be John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, that's Mary, into his household. This is an amazing little statement of Christ. The third statement of Christ from the cross is one that is most instructive. It's easy to read, right past it, and move on to other things, but it's most profound to study it, which is what we're going to do. And you think as the, the Lord was crucified on the cross by that crucifixion detail, there were four women and one man getting as close as possible as they could to him, wouldn't you? As the, the soldiers gambled greedily for his clothing, for his meager clothes, uh, there were four women watching and one man, John. As the religious leaders would file by and hurl accusations and mocking curses at the Lord, there were four 
women there who loved Christ listening to all that and one friend, John, as he forgave the soldiers for what they were doing, there were four ardent followers of Christ standing there listening to that. I'm sure they could scarcely take in what he was doing. Four women. How do we know there were four women? Uh, scholars do what scholars do. If you dive into all the gospels, you can read all the debates uh, because scholars are paid to argue points and prove a position. Uh, I would submit to you that based on the evidence that I see, there were four women there that day based on how you uh, read the text. Uh, there was Mary, Christ's mother, Salome, her sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When you think about Salome, the uh, sister of, of um, Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, and she's the mother of James and John, John's the man standing there. That would make John Christ's cousin. Don't tell me that God doesn't work in family units. He did in theirs. And then there's John. Mary Magdalene, a woman with a history. Uh, Magdala is a little uh, little village. Uh, it's, it's still there today if you come to Israel with us next year. Uh, it's just on the northwestern uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and it's a little town. She was from there. That's where she ran into Christ and he cast the demons out of her and gave her freedom. That's what Christ does. He gives you a new life when he deals with sin and the devil. Four women followed Christ. If you read the other gospels, it says they, they kept distance during this time, uh, but they must have moved closer as darkness began to descend because they wanted to be as close as possible to Jesus. And I'm sure the crucifixion detail wasn't too worried that they were gonna do anything. They were well-armed. In that darkness uh, is when Christ began to speak as it descended and he could still see. Uh, there was one man there standing with the ladies, John, the faithful follower of Christ, the, the one that Christ uh, truly loved as, a, as an intimate disciple, uh, followed hard after Jesus. You have to ask yourself, there's one disciple there. How many more should have been there? How many more? Ten. Ten more. You have to ask a simple question. Where were those men? I mean, it's a Christ's greatest hour where were the other disciples? Uh, Jesus uh, gives us a hint as to where the other disciples probably were. In Matthew 26, verse 31, he says this to the disciples. He says, then Jesus said to them, you, speaking to the disciples, will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Well, they were the sheep. And boy, did they scatter. But there was one friend there who said, I'm, I'm not leaving your side. That was John. I don't know if you've ever been uh, with a friend uh, who's dying. I have. Uh, it is a hard place to be, but it's the best place to be. And he says, I don't care if they arrest me, if they crucify me, I am not leaving you. John stood there with the ladies. After three hours on the cross, I'm sure the pain was uh, unbelievable. Uh, there was an article published years ago that I read when I was in grad school. It was written by a, a doctor, a medical doctor, who gave the uh, medical description of crucifixion. From the moment they began to whip you until the crucifixion moment, what happened to your body before you died? It is an unbelievable article to read, full of schematics to show you what happens medically. Um, I'm sure Christ was in tremendous pain, muscles aching, hard to catch a breath. The way they crucified you is they would bend your legs a little bit and drive the nail in, and they put your, your, your uh, 
seat on a little tiny seat that they constructed. You could just barely sit on it. And if you wanted to catch a breath with your arms nailed to the crossbeam, you had to push down on your feet to push up to get lungs open to receive air. Imagine the pain of just catching a breath. Which, if you look at the pain that Christ went through, it's amazing that he even spoke. But he spoke. And uh, at noon, uh, he said these words to his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. In the Greek, the word is gunai. He called her a gunai, a woman. You know, when I read that this week, again, I've read it many times. I'm always struck by the fact that he called his mother a woman. Do you talk to your mom like this? And he says, woman, behold your son. There was another time in the biblical text that he used this name for his mother. Uh, John chapter 2, when he started his ministry, uh, he was in a city of Cana. And Cana is just uh, in the mountains uh, just west of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and it's right next to Nazareth. Um, been there in both places. A beautiful location. Uh, that's where he started his ministry. And he's going to do his first miracle there because he shows up at the wedding. And his mother comes to him and tells him basically in our vernacular, son, there's an issue with the wedding. Uh, we're running out of what? Wine. Could you do your thing? Could you just do something to help your mom out? This is the first time Christ does not call her mother. He doesn't look at her and say, mother, I can't do that. Or mother, it's not my place to do that. No, this is where the first time Jesus calls her woman. Why do he do that? That's at the beginning of his ministry. Here at the end of his ministry, when he's sacrificing himself for our sin, he looks down from the cross and uses that term again, woman. The theological reason is to, I think, distance himself from her. It might have been her son, but he was the God-man. And at the, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he's telling his mother, yes, you're my, uh, my, my, my mother, but, but I am truly the God-man. Uh, and I need to be seen as the God-man, the Messiah. That's why he called her by that term, mother. I'm sure he knew who that was. He brought comfort to her in those words. Could you imagine your son taking a few moments to look down from the cross to recognize you in the crowd? Even in his death, he was teaching us how to care for people, wasn't he? I mean, think about it. Woman, behold your son. He's, he's reaching down to his mother to comfort her. He's teaching her, he's teaching us, even in his death. When my father was passing away from brain cancer, it was a brutal thing to watch. Um, I went by his convalescent home next near my uh, church in California every morning about 8 o'clock. I'd go see him. I'd go back at lunch because he was near my church. I'd go back at dinner with the kids and my wife, spend time with them. Did that for months. Um, got to know the nursing staff uh, when you're there that often. And I went by there one day, not long before he passed away, and I went in early one morning, uh, and he was not in the room. So I asked the young lady who was making his bed, you know, uh, where's Al? <laughs> uh, she said, well, he's in the restroom, and I'm just making his bed. And so I sat down in a chair, which I usually did to talk to him. And uh, as she was making the bed, uh, it, there was nothing in the room, no music, no TV or anything. And I, I thought I heard her crying. And so I, so I said, uh, are you crying? And she, she said, yes, yes, I am. I said, well, what's happened in your life? I mean, why, why are you crying? Uh, and she said, well, she said, you know, there's a lot of people coming in a place like this. 
And she said, uh, a lot of them come in and say they're religious, say they know God, but then I don't think they do based on how they treat us as nurses. But she said, your dad, he's the real deal of a godly man. He's a Christian man. She's crying as she's making the bed telling me this story. And then she says, as she's tucking the sheets in, she said, I wish he was my dad. She's crying. What do you think I did? You think I parsed a verb participle or something? No. She's crying. I'm crying. My dad comes out of the, the bathroom. What's going on? Just wait. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, I was crying. I was like, because I thought to myself, even in death, the godly man still teaches me by his example. Because all the nursing staff, they were all ethnicities, all these young ladies that poured their life into these patients. And it was not fun work. And what was my dad telling me? He's telling me, non-verbally, son, you, you need to love all of these people. They're all created in God's image. Even in death, he was speaking. You see, that's a mature Christian, isn't it? See, he learned that from Jesus, because on the cross, Jesus is dying, and he paused as the darkness was going to descend to show love and compassion to his mother. It, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. But then you could take the statement also in a second way when he says, behold your son, uh, he could be speaking to John because Jesus then turns and says to John, behold your mother. And then from that hour, the disciple took her, Mary, into his own household. He took care of her. So there's a twofold connotation of the statement of Christ. One, he's saying, uh, mother, look at me. And then he's also saying to John, John, you have a new mother. Her name's Mary. You have to ask yourself, where was Joseph? I mean, he just kind of evaporates, doesn't he? I mean, he's back there in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 41 to following, uh, when Jesus goes to the temple around 12 years old, uh, and, he, and they lose him. You know, can you imagine the hustle bustle of Jerusalem, people everywhere, uh, and they lose him, and they don't know where he is, and they have to go back and find him, and they find him in the temple debating the finest PhDs in the Torah studies that Israel had. They, they don't know how to handle his questioning and reasoning. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall there? This is, they're debating the one who is the Torah, Jesus. Well, he's, Joseph was around then, but then that's it. After that, he just drops out of the gospel story. And so what scholars theorize is, it wasn't long after Christ was 12 that his dad passed away. So he was the firstborn. So what did that mean? Who's going to care for the family? There's other siblings. We know there's other siblings from what the gospels tell us. He had other brothers, he had a brother named James, another one Joseph, a brother named Simon, another brother named Judas, according to Matthew 13, 35. But, but the responsibility for the family when Joseph passed away fell on the shoulders of a young boy named Jesus. Jesus, Savior is his name. He saved his family for sure. When there was a problem, when his mom became a widow, he stepped in and did what a son was supposed to do. He took care of the, of the widow. When I was a young boy at 12 years old, my mom's dad, my grandpa Dorsey, uh, he worked for Union Pacific uh, Railroad. Nothing fancy. He didn't have an education past sixth grade, I think. Uh, he was um, part Choctaw Indian. Uh, he was just a car boy. He unloaded cars, boxcars. Uh, at 56 years old, he died of brain cancer. Kind of runs in my family. Had many 
people in my family have it. I remember when he passed away, and he left my grandma, my grandma Allery, um, with no job. She had no skill to, to find a job. She had no education. She relied on my grandpa. Uh, and she was 53 years old and couldn't collect any part of his pension from Southern Pacific till she was 60. So when my grandmother came to me after the funeral, and that was the first funeral I ever went to, when my grandma Allery came over to me at my mom's house in my mom's living room, and I remember distinctly her putting her arm around me, and she brought me in really tight, and this is what she told me when she leaned down to my 12-year-old ear. She said, Marty, you are now my little man. What did that mean? I just got a job. <laughs> that meant Dorsey's gone, my grandpa's gone. Car needs some work, needs cleaning. You're my car washer. Lawn needs mowing, you're mowing the lawn. Bougainvilleas need to be trimmed every year after, you know, for the winter, you're the trimmer. Chinaberry trees in the backyard, there's a whole bunch of them have to be trimmed. And you wonder why I like gardening? Started out like then. I was my grandma's first customer, I guess. So from 12 years old till I went to college in 18, I was her little man. I'd ride my bike down to her house, mower lawn in 110 degree heat of the desert where I grew up. I mean, I took care of my grandma. Isn't that what a Christian's supposed to do? That's what a Christian's supposed to do. You stand in the gap. See, John was going to stand in the gap and, and take care of a widow. My grandma was a widow. I saw my calling as a young Christian man. Well, I have to take care of the widow. That's what you're supposed to do. Jesus, uh, in his first sermon, uh, Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 18, uh, he says that he came to fulfill the law, all of the law. I mean, the smallest Hebrew letter, a yod, which looks like our version of a comma, and the smallest stroke of a pen that differentiates Hebrew letters from each other that, uh, if I could show them to you, just the smallest little movement of a pen uh, can change a letter from uh, an H with a hard H, like a H, to a H sound, totally different letters, just a small movement of a pen. Jesus said, I, I've come to fulfill all of the law. What does the law say when it comes to widows? Well, on the cross, Jesus is fulfilling the Torah. Deuteronomy 24 says this about widows. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It is to be for three people, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. He says, when you beat your olive tree uh, to get the olives to drop off of it, you shall not go over the boughs again. Why? It says, it shall be for the alien, the leftovers, the orphan and the widow. He says, when you gather grapes from your vineyard, you shall not go back over those lines again. Why? Well, those things that you missed are to be for three people, the alien, the orphan, and the who? The widow. See, what did the Torah say? The Torah said, when you have people that, uh, that are needy, you are there to take care of them, especially a widow. See, even on the cross, as Jesus looks down from the cross, and thinks about dying and leaving his mom there alone as a widow, he looks to his cousin, he looks at John and says, John, would you, would you step in and be the new son? And he did. Again, where, where were Christ's other brothers? Well, they thought he was a lunatic, remember? Imagine if your brother came to your mother and said, I am the new Messiah, the God in the flesh. How would that go over in your family? See, that's kind of the dynamic. And so they had written Christ off. It wouldn't be till later some of them would come to know him, but 
But at that moment, they had rejected the Christ. And so they scattered. But there was one there, one cousin who said, oh, I've seen him in action. This is, this is the Messiah. See, John stepped into the gap when he was asked to step into the gap, which is what Christ asked us to do, is to step into the gap when there's a need, when there's a, an alien, an orphan, a widow. He tells us from the cross, follow my example, follow my example. You have to look at your life and ask yourself, uh, what kind of son am I? What kind of daughter am I? Do I see the need of my widowed mother or my father who's a widower or people in my family that have needs? Am I a cousin who looks across the aisle at what might have happened in the life of another cousin? Do I give them more than just words? Do I step in and actually care? Show care? See, that's what Jesus calls us from the cross to do, to step out and to love those who are less fortunate and care for them. John's response should be our response that we step forward and do what we're called to do is to be the hands and feet of Christ to those about us, to be somebody's little man. Years ago, back in 1992, I came across a story that absolutely blew my mind um, about an old lady. Uh, 1992 was the year uh, Katrina uh, hit the Gulf, uh, and her house, this lady named Narina, was, her house was wiped out. Uh, and she didn't have a lot of money, so she turned in a claim, uh, and they uh, gave her money for her house to rebuild it, and so she hired contractors to come rebuild her house, but eventually it cost so much to rebuild the house, she ran out of money, so when she ran out of money, all the contractors left her. The CBS News story that I ran into uh, back in 1992 uh, said that um, what was most astonishing is that when all the contractors left her because she had no money, no one helped her for the next 15 years. She had no electricity, and she had no like hot water, etc. for 15 years. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the mayor of Dade County uh, found out through a tip uh, that there was an old woman named Narina uh, whose house was in that kind of condition that the mayor got people together to go in to go help her finish out the house. And she said one of the most amazing things when they were done was actually turning the water on to have a hot bath. It had been 15 years. You know, when I read that story, I was thinking to myself a couple of things as a man. If she had a son, what's the logical question? Where was he? If she had a daughter, where was she? If she was in a neighborhood, where were they? Where were the people for 15 years? No one ever looked across the street and said, hey, how come Narina's lights are never on? 15 years. I would submit to you that I would, well, I can't wager because I don't bet, but I would tell you, I think there's a whole lot of Narinas in our culture. People that, that have needs won't say anything about it. And what are they looking for? Well, for the son, the grandson, the, the cousin, the uncle, the friend to step forward to say, I'll, I'll step into that gap. I mean, you're not my mother, but it'd be like you're my mother. I'll, I'll take care of you. See, that's what Christ teaches us in a profound fashion from the cross. When he looks at John and says, behold, your mother, he's telling him, I'm passing on. I'm handing the baton to you. Maybe uh, somebody has uh, handed the baton to you. Have you taken it? Are you going to run with it? There's a lot of things that happen in your life as you go along. Um, and they teach you if you pay attention. When I was a young pastor, when I was 27 years old uh, in Arizona, 
Remember, I was a youth pastor in a retirement community, of all things. Uh, I actually took that job. Um, and one night, uh, I don't know how the lady forgot my name, but one night I got a phone call, and it was a nursing home uh, down by the church. And they said, we've been trying to call pastors. We can't find a pastor. It's you know, like 11 o'clock at night. Nobody's answering. And we found your number, and we got you on the phone. Uh, there's a lady in our facility who's going to pass on here soon. We want you to come down and just pray for her. She's comatose, but would you come pray for her? Absolutely. So I got dressed, told Liz, I'll, you know, I'll be back in a few hours. So I drove down there, walked into the room. Um, the lady was comatose, heavy breathing. I'd been with people like that before. I knew it wasn't going to be long. God was going to usher her into and take her into his presence. So I walked in. It's a very quiet, dark room. There was a man in his 40s at the foot of her bed. I introduced myself. That was her son. So I said, do you, do you mind if I pray for your mother? He said, no, go right ahead. So I walked over to her, grabbed her little lifeless hand, and I prayed over her. And then I backed away, and I stood next to him for quite a while. And eventually, she slipped into eternity. And when she slipped into eternity, he slipped out of the room. About that time, a, a nurse came in, began to attend to the body, and I was standing there, and she said, uh, did you have a chance to talk with that man? I said, yes. Her, her son? Yeah. Yeah, I, I introduced myself. She said, um, I see a lot of things here in rest homes. She said, uh, his, him being here was one of the more strange things I've seen. She said, I remember the day he brought his mom here, 12 years ago. This is the only time he ever returned. He missed all of her birthdays, Mother's Days, never called her, and he was local. He was never there for her. And she said, just as a nurse, I'm just kind of wondering, what kind of son was that? You know, I never forgot that at 27 years old because I thought to myself back then, I will never be that kind of son, no matter what. Because a Christian son does what? He's there. He didn't just check the mother in. He's there to care for that widow. See, that's what Jesus tells us here in a profound way with words you typically just read quickly over. Woman, behold your son, etc. Now he's telling you, follow my example. Take care of those in your family those around you who need a loving touch. Uh, don't let them be alone. Step up to the plate and be the man that you need to be. So it's a challenge to me. It's been that for many years. I hope it's a challenge to you that this Passion Week, you remember the kind of son, the kind of daughter, the kind of cousin, the kind of person God wants you to be. It's the touch lives that need him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Just for words before darkness descended that give us a direction on what kind of people we need to be. Forgive us when we are selfish and think about ourselves other than those around us who have needs. Forgive us for those that we've neglected when we have the power to care for them. And I pray that the Spirit might give us the conviction and the determination uh, to be the kind of John types that we need to be to the Narinas in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.